Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 13. Luke 13. If you're visiting with us, we're studying through this Gospel of Luke. Today we'll look at the first nine verses of chapter 13. You know, the world is full of senseless tragedies, it seems. And uh, because uh, we live in a day of instant communication, we're more widely aware of what happens, uh, not just in our community, but far away. When these things occur, though, whether far away or right in our own backyard, it doesn't seem to matter what the details are. Our response is often the same. Why? Who caused this? How could God let this happen? In our text this morning, Jesus uses the report of uh, two local tragedies to teach us some things about our answers to those questions, what they should and should not be. Let me read it. Luke 13, 1 to 9. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then I'll cut it down. There are two distinct parts of this passage, uh, verses 1 to 5 and verses 6 to 9. So that gives us two distinct points. The first one's this. Suffering does not show guilt. Suffering does not show guilt. Day before yesterday, we remembered the attacks of September 11, 2001 one of the most tragic and most maddening days in United States history. But one of the very saddest things about that day is the blame shifting that's taken place since then. We've not, to my knowledge, actually blamed the people who died that day. I'm thankful for that. But many have blamed the country, the country which was attacked, Some evangelical Christian leaders at the time seemed to agree with the radical Muslims that God was judging the United States. That's why this happened. Some far-left zealots have blamed the leaders of America, saying that uh, there was some bizarre plot by President Bush or others to, to, to do this terrible deed. What about the guys who actually attacked? Aren't they the ones to blame, not the victims? In our text, we see that this blame the victim mentality is not a new phenomenon, though. 
Jesus cites two examples of it. First of all, in verse 1, Jesus is told of some Galileans suffering at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Now, we don't know anything else about this particular incident, but we do know about Pontius Pilate. He was a ruthless tyrant who thought nothing of slaughtering the people that he ruled. He once took gold from the treasury of the Jewish temple to build an aqueduct that he wanted to build. And when the Jewish people uh, uh, protested that, what was his answer? He just killed them all. He was ruthless. And so in our text, Jesus hears about the latest incident. Apparently some Jews from Galilee had uh, gone on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, it's been suggested it was probably for Passover, for that was the only time when lay people would sacri- make sacrifices themselves. Now, the, 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 the Galileans were a rather independent sort. They were kind of the backwoods people in Israel, way up north, and that was probably threatening to Pilate and his people. So for whatever reason, Pilate had them all killed, either in the temple or right outside the temple. But even that wasn't enough. After killing them, their blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices they were offering. It's as if a gunman came in here on communion Sunday and shot a bunch of people dead and then mixed the blood with the communion wine. Total sacrilege. Defilement of everything sacred. That's Pontius Pilate. Then Jesus speaks of another tragedy which apparently everyone knew about. In Siloam, that's a little area within the city of Jerusalem, there was a place around the water source in uh, Jerusalem, there had been an accident. It sounds like a construction accident, but we don't know. Maybe it was an existing tower, maybe it was just some scaffolding. But anyway, it collapsed and fell on a group of people, and 18 people died in this accident. So here we have two kinds of tragedies that Jesus talks about. A terrible atrocity committed by a human tyrant and a tragic, deadly accident that nobody saw coming. But the response of people in Jesus' day was the same kind of response sometimes we have today. People said, or at least they thought, I wonder what those people did to deserve that. Or, I thought there was something fishy about those guys. Or, Apparently, God knew something about them we didn't know. Or as we so often say concerning the suffering poor, you know, I think they only have themselves to blame, really. And Jesus says, no. No. It's too easy to just conclude that those people had it coming. Suffering does not suggest guilt. Now, actually, this is a rather thorny problem. Just to stand back and look at the whole for a moment. For the truth is, sometimes God does chasten the guilty with trouble and hardship and suffering. Remember the people in Corinth who desecrated the Lord's Supper and ate of it in an unworthy fashion? We read of them that some got sick and others died. The Lord chastened his people. Oh, but sometimes it's just the opposite. It's the righteous who suffer 
and the guilty go free, even prosper. Remember Job's friends? Job had terrible trouble come on him, everything imaginable. And his friends had it all figured out. Job must have sinned. Obviously, Job sinned. God doesn't punish the, 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 the righteous. God wouldn't have punished him if he didn't sin. They're very articulate. Job sometimes sounds like a bumbling fool. They're very articulate. They know their theology. But they were wrong. And God chastened them from maligning righteous Job. So how do we know whether someone's suffering is a sign of their guilt or not? How do we know? We don't. We don't. Oh, if we are suffering ourselves, it is entirely reasonable for us to humbly search our hearts and ask our Heavenly Father if indeed He is chastening us and trying to teach us something. That's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But when someone else suffers, it's entirely inappropriate for us to presume to judge that person's soul and pronounce that his suffering is some kind of punishment for his sin. You don't know that. This is not Judgment Day, and you are not the judge. Suffering does not suggest guilt. Instead, Jesus says, that the suffering victims of human atrocities and tragic accidents are no worse sinners than anyone else. Rather than condemn them in their trouble, we ought to consider ourselves, for it could be us. We are all sinners over whose head judgment hangs. Now those who suffer often feel their frailty and their neediness more. That's why Jesus calls the poor blessed. Not because it's good to be poor, but because suffering people are quicker to call upon God for mercy. It's those who live a charmed life who are in greatest danger. We easily dismiss the suffering and neediness of, as the victim's own problems. And we assume that since we live in peace and prosperity, God's pleased with us. We're okay. And with that kind of thinking, we merely go through life oblivious to our great need to be reconciled to God. No wonder Jesus says twice in these few verses, I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see, this morning I'm not preaching to those of you who are broken and hurting and suffering people, saying you need to turn away from your sin and call upon God for mercy. Broken people already know that. They've probably been crying out to God for a long time already. This morning I'm preaching to you who are healthy and prosperous and living at ease. You need to turn away from your sin and call upon God for mercy. You are in danger of perishing. Not because you're worse sinners than those who are suffering, but because you're just no different. 
In reality, you are in as desperate need as the homeless people down on the bottom end of Holly Street or the inmates serving time down in Monroe. When I was a pilot, we had to learn about hypoxia. That's oxygen starvation, if you don't know that word. Especially if you're flying by yourself. You have to be able to recognize your own symptoms of hypoxia and help yourself before it's too late. But here's the interesting point. Knowing your symptoms. For some, the symptoms of hypoxia, of oxygen starvation, are frightening. They feel dizzy and lightheaded and short of breath. They start to get a headache and they begin to feel nauseated. And they start tingling, feeling like they're going numb. And if they look at their hands, their hands, the back of their hands are, are turning blue. Something is obviously bad wrong. Right, you have hypoxia. You're about to go unconscious for lack of oxygen. But interestingly, for others, the symptoms are much more subtle. You know, one of the biggest symptoms of hypoxia is euphoria. A feeling that everything is great. I've never felt better. <laughs> I've watched other pilots in the altitude chamber where we were learning this stuff. They're laughing and smiling and ignoring an instructor saying, put on your oxygen mask. You need to put on your oxygen mask. No, I'm all right, I'm fine. And in reality, they are seconds away from unconsciousness, followed by death. So which of those folks have hypoxia? The ones who feel sick or the ones who feel euphoric? Both. But which is in the greatest danger? Not those who are suffering distress. They know they're suffering distress. But the ones who believe everything is fine with me. So Jesus said, those were those who suffered greater sinners than others? I tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Folks, this is not my assessment. The truth is, I'm inclined to be impressed with uh, uh, your good life. This is the Lord's assessment when he says in his word, God looks down from heaven to see uh, the sons of men, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. No, nope. everyone's turned away. They've together become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Suffering is not what suggests guilt. We're all guilty. Then Jesus teaches us a second truth. As he turns our attention from those who are suffering to those who, uh, who live a, a, a blessed life. Which brings us to our second point, which is this. God expects us to be faithful. God expects us to be fruitful. I'm sorry, fruitful. God expects faithful too. God expects us to be fruitful. In the second part of our text, Jesus tells a parable. This parable has, a, has deep roots in Jewish life. 
he tells us about a fig tree planted in a vineyard. Now, that sounds quaint to us, perhaps. We don't have a lot of vineyards around, and we don't have a lot of fig trees around, and uh, oh, that's kind of an ancient Middle Eastern kind of thing or something. But in Israel, this is bigger than life. For both the fig tree and the vineyard were ancient metaphors for the people of Israel. So when Jesus tells this parable (coughs) about a fig tree that never produced figs, he sounds a lot like Isaiah back in Isaiah 5, talking about a vineyard that never produced good grapes. God expected his people to be fruitful. That's the point. Some of us are recreational gardeners. We like to putz around in our yards, but the results don't matter to us. It's kind of the fun of messing around. I've noticed, though, that farmers are not like that. They work up the soil and they plant and they fertilize for one reason, a crop. It's not just afternoon of fun. They want a crop. I saw that last summer in my neighbor's field. He worked up the field, as he does every year, every year I've lived there. He planted corn, as he has planted every year that I've been there. He side-dressed it, he watered it, he did all the normal things. He cultivated it, and it looked pretty good at first, and then all of a sudden it stopped growing. Little tiny baby stalks of corn. Some wireworm or something got into it. Now, what did my neighbor do? Did he say, well, you know, it's still a nice-looking field, it's nice for the Hitchcocks to have a little corn they can see over. It's, it's nice. No, he didn't say that. Next day, he plowed it up. Started over. His goal was to produce a fruitful crop. So it is with the Lord. Jesus is speaking this parable against Israel. God had lavished care on his ancient people for centuries. He brought them out of Egypt with his mighty hand. He sustained them through the wilderness, giving them food and water in miraculous ways. He brought them into the promised land that he had promised 400 years earlier to give them. He cared for them. He gave them everything they needed. He was their protector. He was their provider. He was their sustainer. He was their guide. He was their sovereign Lord and King. And what did these centuries of his care produce nothing but leaves a pretty fig tree a pretty vine no fruit when the Messiah Jesus came they would not have him they didn't like his radical brand of religion they liked what they were used to all God's care had produced no godly fruit in them So God said, cut it down. Cut that tree down. It's useless. Isn't that exactly what John the Baptist had prophesied of Messiah's coming? The axe is already laid at the base of the tree. Cut it down. God expects fruit. And he will not settle for less. And folks, this parable applies to us. The New Testament calls Christ's church his field that's planted and watered to produce fruit. God has lavished his care on us even more than he ever did on Israel. 
We have the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. We have the message of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. We have God's word in our hands. Not just his promises, but the fulfillment of those promises. We have been given his spirit who empowers us to produce the fruit of the spirit. We've been given spiritual gifts, special enablements, whereby we can serve the Lord in practical ways. So God expects us to be fruitful. Not just to look like Christians and have Christian leaves. Not just to go through the motions or to play church games, but to trust him and obey him with all of our heart and produce the fruit of godliness and holiness and good works for which he called us. In fact, Jesus later uses a similar metaphor to speak to us. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is cut off and thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire to be burned. God expects us to be fruitful. But as Jesus is telling this parable, all of a sudden there's kind of an unexpected line that comes in. Another voice that says, sir, now don't cut it down. Leave it alone and I'll dig around it and fertilize it and we'll see if next year it will produce some fruit. If not, then we can cut it down. Do you see what Jesus is suggesting here? Here in the midst of this warning of God's judgment against fruitlessness, in this last verse, there's a word of grace. God's loving kindness, God's long-suffering patience. Give it another year. A little more care. A little more fertilizer. See if it won't bear fruit. And indeed, that's what God did with Israel, is it not? Even after the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to be crucified, God was still patient with them. When the apostles went out with the good news of Jesus' resurrection, where did they go? First to the Jews. First into the synagogues. Listen to the apostle Peter as he addresses some of these unbelieving Jews. He says, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. But then he doesn't say, so God's done with you. He says, now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God is still patiently calling them to himself. We hear Paul say the same thing. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness lead you to repentance. Paul's still proclaiming God's patience and kindness, calling them to Jesus. We sometimes speak of living on borrowed time when it seems our good fortune should have ended in disaster, and yet we somehow survived. Well, here Jesus indicates that Israel was living on borrowed time. Judgment was coming. But God in his mercy extended the deadline. Not a year, a bunch of years. And folks, the New Testament speaks just that way to us, too. 
The Apostle Peter speaks of Christ's return to to judge and how it seems to be put off. And he says, God hasn't forgotten what he promised. He's just being patient with you that you might repent and be saved. But repent we must. And be fruitful we must. According to Hebrews 5 and 6, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary things of God's Word. Let's leave the elementary teachings and, and, and go on to maturity. And God permitting, we will. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receive the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. God expects us to be fruitful. This morning, we need to hear this clearly. God will not be satisfied with an unfruitful people claiming to belong to him. God cut down that tree, which was Israel. Cut it to the ground. It was utterly destroyed in 70 AD. He will just as certainly utterly destroy an unfruitful church. But God has extended grace to us. A little more time that we might repent. So this morning I call you to turn around. Turn from your self-made religion. Turn from your sin. Turn from your dependence on yourself and your commitment to serve yourself. And entrust yourself to Jesus. Everything you have, everything you are, everything you don't have, everything you could be, to simply say to him sincerely, Here I am, Lord. I'm yours. You bought me with your blood. I have no one but you. I'm nothing without you. In your mercy, Lord, save me and use me and produce fruit through me. I cannot do anything apart from you. For God expects us to be fruitful. And you will never produce any good fruit unless you're connected to Jesus, the true fig tree, the true vine, the true source of life. How we wish we could just kind of sit back and watch what's going on in the world and see people suffering and say, hmm, yeah, I know why this happened to him. I know what God's doing here. We can't do that. For things are often not what they seem. We don't know God's ways. We don't know his secrets. Specifically, suffering does not indicate who's guilty. But beyond that, Jesus never gives us the luxury of being a spectator. We always want to just sit back and watch what God's doing with others. God says, no, you deal with yourself. Oh, we can find lots of people worse than us, but God says, I don't care. What about you? You need to repent and trust me. 
God expects us to be fruitful. And he warns us that apart from Jesus, we can't do a thing. Let's pray. Well, Father, all of us can think of people that need this sermon, but probably not us. Give us the grace, Lord, to listen to what you have to say. Take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and cause it to grow and bear fruit in us, the fruit of understanding, the fruit of humility, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith in Christ. We ask you to do what we cannot do for ourselves, Lord, to change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.